0: they have a library and that library is kind of down in the basement of the girls dorm it seems to be that that's the place where a library needs to be right and if you're down in that basement and you look out you basically see nothing because the windows are so high so this is not a real good place to study to work and I was, at that time, the head librarian. That, that sounds good, but uh, the head librarian was a person who was in charge over about 10,000 books at that time, and the people are coming in, the students, and they learn. It's basically one room, it's 20 years or so plus ago, one room, and my office, if you call it office, was just separated by some board sheets, is that the right term? Wooden board sheets. So if you go in there and the people talk in the reading room, I could hear everything in my office. Of course, YC versa too. So there was this one day, and by the way, it's still the same in Bogenhofen. Nothing has changed from that time for the library. So at that time I came in I opened the door to the reading room and before me was the reading room, nobody was in there. But then I heard two people talking to each other in my office, behind these wooden boards, which should be a wall. And I heard them loud and clearly. And the things they were saying to each other were definitely not pleasant to my ears, talking about me. I mean, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I was there still standing in the door frame of the, living, of the reading room and I thought, well, maybe I should just leave because <laughs> if I go in now, this will be most embarrassing for them. So I closed the door I went off, and because I still remember today, I can tell you the story today. You see what kind of impression that left on me, right? That was not good, I tell you. So if two people talk to each other about you and you're not there, what do they say? Second instance, also a few years ago, I got a call from somebody from the general conference and uh, never got a call from him. I I didn't even know that he has my number. So he called and I was on the phone and he invited me to to do something. And I was so perplexed that I did not even ask him why. Then he hung up and that's it. I thought to myself, how in the world Does it come that he called me? Well, half a year later, we had a student tour with our Bogenhofen Academy students. We go to the East Coast. We do a kind of a a fun tour, but also an Adventist tour, going to the General Conference, for example, looking at the place so that they can see a little bit more of the Adventist world. So we were having the tour through the General Conference, and... Here you go, that same person who called me was coming down the alley. I recognized him. said, this is my chance. So I said to the tour guide, please continue. I will catch up down there at the Alamite Research Center. I have to ask him something. So I went to him and uh, after very little small talk, I asked him the question, why did you call me at that time? And you know what he said? Well two people talk to me about you. And then I thought, I can call him. And that was a pleasant experience for me. So if two people talk about you, would you like to be there to listen in a little bit? (laughs) To see what they are thinking, what they're really thinking about you? What would happen? If Jesus and the Father talk with each other and not knowing you could be there, listen to them, have a kind of eavesdrop on them, and they would not know that you're there. I mean, of course, theology students, please hold. It's not possible. It's not possible. Let me assure you, it's not possible. But just for the sake of imagination, what would they say to each other about you? Wouldn't that be interesting to see what God really thinks about you? There's a place in the Bible which comes very close to that situation. Very close. Jesus and the Father are talking with each other. And in fact, they're really talking about you. You're interested? Let's turn to the Gospel of John. John chapter 17. I probably does not need, I, I do not need to tell you that John also is a master narrator. Not only Dr. Luke is is somebody who kind of plays with theological threads through his gospel, John is doing the same thing. And when John comes to chapter 17, there's something very interesting happening here. If you have a red-letter Bible edition, you will see it immediately. Because usually in his farewell speech, in Jesus' farewell speech, John is interspersing some kind of narrative commands. He, as a narrator, can say, well, and Thomas asked him and Jesus said. These are all things which are not in dialogue. But in Chapter 17, the interesting thing is that after John introduces the prayer of Jesus, there are no more black-letter verses in Chapter 17. It's all read, in my Bible at least. So when he says, after Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, it's like the narrator John steps back and says to us as as his audience, watch what happens. I will not interrupt in any way. It's Jesus' personal prayer with the Father. Who am I that I just interrupt any time? He continues in chapter 18, verse 1, with when he had finished praying. So this makes it a very special and intimate prayer season of Jesus with his Father. And it is this prayer season which we can overhear and we can listen in, we can eavesdrop on Jesus and the Father talking about us. It starts in verse two. Is it still first one? It's first one with Father. The word Father occurs six times in John 17, which gives us the impression it's really personal. It's intimate here. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. Now, John likes to explain things in a, in a double way. It's kind of like deep theology. You have a surface level, what, what happens in the gospel, and if you look through the words he uses, sometimes you dig down a little deeper. For example, here when it says, the hour has come. Okay, what kind of hour is that? All right, we, we know that afterwards Jesus goes probably to the Garden of Gethsemane and the final 24 hours take place. His life on Earth before his crucifixion. But the term hour in the Gospel of John already appears in chapter two. My hour has not come. When Jesus kind of reprimands Mary, his mother, to say, you know, my hour has not come yet. And the hour in the Gospel of John appears again and again and again. Let's just take two verses. Chapter 7, verse 30. What is the hour of Jesus? This they tried to seize him, but not one laid a hand on him because his hour has not come yet. And then the verse, which we usually read at the foot washing, It was just before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that the hour had come. Which hour? It says here the hour for him to leave this world and go to the Father. In the Gospel of John, you could have the hour, and the hour always refers to the crucifixion event, the resurrection morning, and the going away of Jesus to the Father. That's the hour. So when he prays, the hour has come. Jesus is fully aware of these last hours, literal hours, because that's the hour. Glorify your son. It's another term you would use in the lexicon gospel of John and English. What is the glorification or the glory or to glorify the son? What's interesting. It has two meanings in the gospel of John. The one is clearly the cross. The cross is Christ's throne of glorification. He gets glorified on the cross. To be glorified on a cross, that's kind of a thought. It was so absurd for the people at that time. On a cross, nobody could be glorified. But John is very clear. That's the hour of glory. But there's another glory of Jesus. And uh, we will see that in chapter 17, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus possessed a glory, a glory he had already before the creation of this world. That's a glory we will think about a little more later on. And then he, in his prayer, addresses the gods concerning his 12 disciples, 11 at that time. And once he is through with the disciples, praying for them, praying for unity, for love. He comes in verse 20, and he there includes us. My prayer is not for them alone. That's the first generation of followers. But I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. And I believe that includes us. Are you a believer? Because of the message of the first disciples? I mean, this is the way how it works, right? How do you come to believe? Let me just ask you, and you raise your hand. I probably see it from up here. Um, If you think about a person who was major in your life to bring you to Jesus, to introduce you to Jesus Christ, if you think now about a person whom you could thank for you becoming a follower of Jesus. Is there somebody in your life you might think about? Let me see your hands. Good. Let's let's turn it around. There was no person involved in you finding and following Jesus who can raise his hand there. Let me see your hands. Yes, and those in the first or second row, please turn around, look. I see nobody. Doesn't that say something about how we come to Jesus? We need other people. The disciples continue, the next generation, So, the first again, the second is the first, and the third is the first again, and they have to, preach they have to go out they have to be committed tomorrow wait they have to be committed to proceed with the message to other people that they can come to know the Lord it's it's a miracle the almighty Lord of the universe uses human beings frail as we are to reach other human beings that's why we're here for after you have come to jesus that's the sole reason you're here for to glorify your father and the son and the spirit and tell other people of what you have experienced so when the other generation comes also to faith jesus already prayed for that generation i pray for those who will believe in me through their message. And then he has two two wishes, two pleas, so to speak. The first one is that all of them may be one. Well, there's a whole story about that, and I won't go into this plea of Jesus. I want to focus on the last plea of Jesus in the Gospel of John. Yesterday we focused on the last call of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Today, it will be his final plea. After that, there's no more Lord's pleas. It's his final wish he offers to God, to his Father. And we find that in verse 24. It starts again with Father. Father, I want. Actually, that's not a good translation. Probably you have a, a Bible version which says, I will. Jesus' whole will is behind that. I want something. I So desperately, I will, Father. I will that those you have given me are with me where I am. That's Jesus' final wish. Remember John 14 verses 1 and 3? That's how he started his farewell speech. What did he say there? Just a few minutes ago, so to speak. He said to his disciples, you know, I'm going to heaven to my Father, and I will build dwelling places for you. And because I do that, you know that I will come back and receive you to where? To myself. And bring you where? to the place where I am, to the place where I am. Jesus' wish from the start is that he will bring us home to his home, to his place. And here again at the end of his farewell speech, which goes through from chapter 14 to 17, right to this final plea here, here again it is, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. In other Gospels, we have chronologically one more I will. That's the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know that situation, that scene. I mean, if you want to portray a scene where you can see how Christ struggled for our salvation, how he was absolutely determined to save us, I would probably make a bronze sculpture of the Garden of Gethsemane. The cross, of course, is the high point. But in Gethsemane, it was decided. There, he won. From the garden on, it's just like a one-way street. Jesus will not turn left or right, look behind, nothing. Jesus is focused after the garden more than ever. There, he wrought our salvation. But in the Gospel of John, you you, f- you look desperately for the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not there. Why does John, who is so intense on the person of Jesus Christ, not mention that garden scene? Why is he skipping that over? Why is it not here? All he says is in chapter 18, verse 1 and 2, that they crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden. And he and his disciples went into it, and Judas comes along first too. He skips that most important scene in the salvation of man. Well, let me give you some holy speculation. I believe that has a, a narrative intention. Intention. He does not want us to be, hold on, distracted by the garden scene. Distracted from what? From Jesus' final prayer. He's the only one mentioning the prayer which we call the intercessory prayer, the prayer of the, of the high priest on earth, so to speak. He does not want us to to focus on anything else but on that prayer. That's why Jesus goes to the cross. And his final wish, his final plea in chapter 17, verse 24. This is on Jesus' mind as he continues. And John will not by any means intersperse with anything else That thought, he wants us to be with him. That's why he goes to the cross. Well, let's continue to read at that time. What does he really want? I will that those you have given me will be with me where I am. And there's a reason why he wants that? And to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Now, that is not the glory on the cross. Jesus uses again the phrase, which you loved me before the creation of the world. That's the glory of verse 5. The glory I had with you before the world began. That's Jesus' glory. I mean, His full, otherworldly, supernatural glory, His divine glory. And Jesus wants us to see it. When will that happen? That we will see that kind of glory. It's clear, second coming, when Jesus comes back. You see, Jesus' final plea has not been fulfilled yet. It's still open there. The Father has not fulfilled Jesus' wish yet. It's still there. He wants us to be with Him. We are not at this moment So Jesus looks forward to the second coming. He wants to come back so that his heart's desire will be fulfilled. His longing finds finally its fulfillment. Why do you long for the second coming? Let's make this excursus a little bit here. Um, There are many reasons why I long for the second coming. I call them the no more reasons, no more what, no more sin, no more sickness, no more diabetes, no more cancer, no more heartache, no more accidents, no more war, no more death. And you can continue. There are endless, no more reasons why Jesus needs to come back and why I look forward for him to come back. No more all of this. Once I asked my students in the religion class, the academy students, do you look forward to Christ's coming? And of course they say yes and yes and here yes. But I still remember that Small, almost like Tsukio's size, girl. There, and she just almost turned eighteen, and she said, mm, "I'm not sure." And that's, of course, the moment when the religion teacher needs to ask, right? Well, tell me, what is it? And he said, "Ah, you know, I'm just doing my driver's license. <laughs> I-, I would like to get that." And then she continued, fully serious. Well, and I, 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 I'd like to find a companion of life. And I'd like to have kids. I'd like, I, and, and then, then he can come. Do, do you know these thoughts? I'd like to be at the ASI meeting. Oh, well, I, I don't know if that is a good reason for Jesus not to come. Right. I'd like this. I'd like that. We have plans for our future. And uh, unfortunately, it seems the older we get, the more we like Jesus to come. What's wrong with this world? What's wrong with me? Do you like Jesus to come? When should he come? Now, yesterday, right? Now, why should he come? Let's do an imagination, an experiment here. It's Church Father Augustine in the fourth century in his Psalm Commentary. He lays out this kind of experiment. And just follow along, will you, for a moment? He says, Imagine God appeared to you and said, Let's do that little off what he wrote there. Imagine he would come in right there through the exit back door. Comes in, he sees you, and he makes you an offer, a deal. He says, okay, uh, I give you something. Would you like to have that? And you ask, well, what do you give me? Well, I give you eternal life. You'd like to have eternal life? Who goes for that deal? Something is wrong with you. Why are why you not raising your hand? You want eternal life, yes or no? Yes. Oh, finally. <laughs> not without Jesus. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> not in this world. Which world? The new earth. Okay, you like eternal life. Okay, you like uh, endless good pleasure. No? are you depressed or what (laughs) am i at the wrong place here right now of course we would like good pleasure we would like how does he continue here freedom you like freedom power honor wealth real heavenly wealth and not the things which deteriorate on earth it's away. No, real wealth. You like that? You like the treasure house of heaven? Good. Peace of mind. A good conscience. Yes. So if Jesus comes in, if the Lord comes in and says, I can offer that, yeah, that to you right now, would you take his hand and say, Deal. I think you know the experiment. What if Jesus would continue saying, there's just one thing. It's in the small print, you know. There's one thing. You will never see my face. What would you do? If that is for real, Jesus offers you eternal life, everything good you can imagine of, and more. And he says, there's just one thing, you will not see my face. Would you do it right now? You could skip years of, I don't know, heartache, pain, sickness maybe. You could skip death. Would you do that? I think for a true follower of Jesus, our heartbeat would skip for a moment. Shivers would go down our spine to say, not see Jesus. I can't imagine that. Give me everything, I I will not do it. Because that's the single reason we're looking forward to the second coming, isn't it? All the no more reasons. They're not good in the end. The single reason why we look forward to that time is to see the Savior. This is our Lord we have been looking for. And now we look into His eyes. Never, never, never. You know, it's almost like in a few days, I celebrate my silver anniversary. Did I say I, we, we? My wife and I, Mariana. By the way, if you listen to this anyway, I love you. I hope she listens to it somehow. <laughs> few days, actually, thirteen days. In thir- I need to hold on thirteen days. Now I, I think back to my wedding day. Think back to yours or or if you don't had one yet, think ahead. (laughs) And you have the wedding there. You have the the groom styled. You have the, the congregation. You have the wedding cake. The bridal suite is ordered. The gifts are all there, mountaining up. Everything is there. Except the bride is missing. What kind of wedding would that be? I mean, could you celebrate? Could you dance? Of course, we don't dance so much, but would you dance for joy? Would you do this? Would you do that? If the bride is missing? No, never. That's how it is with Christ's coming. If Christ would come back without Christ, it would not be a coming back. We want to see Jesus We hope for Jesus Christ himself. That will be our greatest prize. Jesus given to humanity forever in our presence. We in his presence. It's Jesus' glory. It's the wish of Jesus himself. I would like them to see my glory. Why would he like us to see his glory? Does Jesus love his glory so much that he wants to show it to us? Is he kind of self possessed here a little bit? Can't be, right? Doesn't fit to Jesus. Why does he want us to see his glory? Well, there are other places in the New Testament where Jesus' glory is seen. And uh, he explains it to us a little bit. In the Gospel of John, somebody else sees Jesus' glory. It's Isaiah. In John chapter 12, verse 41, uh, John refers back to that moment when Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah chapter 6, it's recorded when he sees Jesus on the throne. He's talking about Jesus. By the way, that's one of the best reasons in the New Testament why Jesus is the Old Testament Yahweh. Because there in Isaiah 6 the person which, uh, who Isaiah sees is Yahweh. And in John chapter 12 John says Isaiah saw Jesus. And he saw him on the throne and he spoke of him. Seeing Jesus kind of Triggers something in the people who see him. They speak of him. Because if you see Christ's glory, you will go and talk about it. That's something we learn from John chapter 12, verse 41. But there's uh, something more. If we turn to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we read the following And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, see his glory, are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. If you behold the glory of the Lord, you become changed. I think that's one of the phrases Ellen White likes most. She uses it in different contexts, but most often, she is applying it to Christ as our object of contemplation. I'll give you one example, just only, in great controversy. Five, five, five. Easy to remember," she says. "It is a law, both of the intellectual and the spiritual nature that by beholding, we become changed. That's the phrase she likes. By beholding, we become changed. How do we behold Christ? I mean, we can't see him, right? So what does it mean to behold Christ right now in that life we live here? I think the next sentence explains it the mind gradually adapts itself to the subjects upon which it is allowed to dwell. So if the subject is Jesus Christ, if we dwell on Jesus Christ in our thinking, we become changed, changed in his image, says Paul. Now in Second Corinthians 3, He says, as if in a mirror. The mirrors at that time, they were not good mirrors, not like the mirrors you looked in this morning. These mirrors are great. You can see everything which is not in order. These mirrors are polished metal mirrors. You can see yourself, but it's not that clear. That's a a, a good example of how Paul considers us to look at Jesus' face, we don't see his glory as he is. We can behold it through studying the word, singing songs about him, reading, talking with other people about him. We can dwell on Jesus in our minds, with our soul. But seeing him is in the real physical life, would be even more. You probably remember when Ellen White saw Jesus. She didn't want to come back to this earth. To just see him once was enough for her to say, I would like to stay there. Still, by beholding, we become changed. Now, Is this one of the reasons that we will not sin anymore? Because we see Jesus as he really is? Now, this is a kind of a speculation of me, so please forgive me if I'm totally wrong. I might be, but for the sake of speculation, and I like to speculate a lot, let's go that way for just a moment. How does it come that we will be unable to sin? Of course, we know what happened because of sin on earth. So if we are with Jesus in heaven, we will be remembering what was on earth. And because we remember what there was, we we don't want to relive that again. We have been convinced that God is love. We will not sin again but maybe there is something more to it. Maybe there is a reason in Jesus' last plea on earth. I want them to see my glory. There's another person who saw Jesus' glory. It's Peter. Peter mentions it in a a second letter in chapter 1 that we saw his glory, his majesty, and it was the glory of the beloved son. And then There in 2 Peter 1, after he says the glory of the beloved son, he quotes the father's statement he heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. So he thinks back to Jesus' glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened to Peter there? You can read it in Matthew 17. When Peter, drunken of sleep, so to speak, opened his eyes, and he saw Jesus in his glory, he had an idea, great idea on the Mount. And the idea was, let's build houses, huts. How many huts does he ch- did he suggest to build? I think he suggested to build six huts, one for Jesus, one for Elijah, one for Moses, and three for the disciples. Six great huts to ever dwell on the Mount of Glory. Of course, you know there are three too many. It's just three huts. Why? You think Peter didn't want to stay on that mountain? I mean, Peter, the one who loves Lake Genezareth, the one who loves the water, the fishermen, on a mountain it's like a fish on land but he wants to stay there why cause of Jesus glory he sees it and once he sees Jesus in his glory he forgets all about himself just build three huts let me build three huts for you Jesus for Elijah and for Moses He's not thinking about himself anymore. And that's what is happening if we see Jesus in his glory. We do not think about ourselves. Sin and our lives are not that important anymore. We see Jesus and how he is. Oh, there was somebody else who wanted to see Jesus how he is. Remember? Zacchaeus. Once Zacchaeus saw who Jesus was, it was nothing about himself anymore. It was all about other people and about Jesus. That's what made Jesus happy. That's what propelled him for his final days. To see Jesus, that is our goal. John, also recognize that when he starts in John 1, 14, the sun, the word became flesh and we saw his glory. I believe he refers back to the Mount of Transfiguration. And I believe we can do the same thing. In the Valley of the Sun, we should see the mountain of the sun. We should see Jesus in His glory, a little bit, through a dark mirror. We can see it right this morning. Let me finish by unashamedly quoting from another sermon. It's a sermon from a Baptist minister, Dr. Jerry Vines, 1976. He held that sermon in Alabama. It's called The Risen Lord. And at the end of that sermon, he told a story about a special home in Kentucky. It's a home for mentally disabled children. It's run by Christians. And the people who run that home, they thought we could do maybe a mini-series about basic gospel truths. So they came together, thought a little bit, what can we present those children who probably cannot even understand what we say? Let's try. So they did their mini-series and imagine you would be a reporter coming to their place and asking them, well, how did it go? And the workers smile at you and say, it was good. But did they understand anything? And they smile again and say, yes, they did. Well, how do you know they understand? Oh, that's easy. We know. Well, but... but what did they understand? And they say that Jesus will come back for them. Why? Tell us. How do you know they understood that Jesus will come back for them? So they lead you up to the windows and they show you the windows. And you recognize something the lower window shield. The glasses were all filled with fingerprints of those children who stood there longingly, longingly looking up to see Jesus come back. And the workers say each evening we have to go around and clean the window glasses because of these avidly looking children. They understood. So I wish for you and for me today that tonight when we go to bed, Jesus has to come to clean the windows of our heart because they are full of fingerprints of us who are standing there longingly waiting for Jesus to come back so that we could finally see His glory. See Him as He really is. John, the beloved disciple, not only wrote the Gospel of John, I think he saw Jesus in His glory also because the book of Revelation records that. And I think John has Jesus' desire in his own heart. In his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 2, he says something very interesting there. First John, chapter 3. Let me start with verse 1. We close with that verse. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. We are children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. So we know Jesus. Dear friends, says old John here, Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. For, and this is the reason why we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. By beholding, we will be changed. Let's rise for prayer. Lord, thank you that we can behold you. We know it's through a dark mirror, but what we can see in your word, in the lives of your followers, is already giving us a glimpse of your glory. And it is wonderful. We confess we have seen nothing like this so far. But we also know when we will see you, when you come back, and we will look into your face, we know that the things on this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and your grace. The words of a blind, woman, a blind songwriter, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Lord, make your wish, make your last plea, which has not yet been fulfilled, our heart's desire today. We want to see you. So, just appropriate to finish with the words of John. When you said, I will come quickly, he says, Lord, please come. Come quickly. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org